Yo, solving COVID-19 with Dr. Ray Watt Dianandan. Episode 25 coming at you. Let's do this. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Kwadra Karamante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients and their families because inefficiencies, overwork and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost effective, dignified and just for everyone involved. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Solving Healthcare. We're on episode 25 already, and thank you for your continued support. And we're we're going to continue to try and provide you with the most reliable COVID-19 material as possible. And our guest today, Dr. Rewa Dianandan, is like, you guys are going to love this episode. Like, in this episode, we talk about how social isolation is working. The importance of increasing testing, especially having reliable and, and, and quick test results. We'll talk about how, in his opinion, we, you know, we're about two weeks away from flattening the curve. This interview took place March 31st. And talk, we're also talking about future treatments of, for COVID-19 and what the possibilities are and much more. What was great, though, is at the end of it all, he really left you with, a feeling of optimism, which is something I feel like is lacking in this conversation. All right, let me tell you about our sponsors before we jump into it. BetterHelp, I love these guys. This is an online counseling service that provides accessible, affordable, and convenient counseling to those in need. And whether it's a struggling teen, whether it is couple counseling, whether it's healthcare providers that are struggling with Compassion Fatigue, they provide all these services. And this is through video chat. This is through texting. This is through email. This is through phone calls. So it's convenient. It's reliable. They provide an amazing service. So use promo code Solving Healthcare and get 10% off sign-up fees. I'm super excited to tell you about our second sponsor, audible.com. And I don't know if a lot of you our book listeners, but I've transitioned to listening to most of my books about five years ago through Audible, and it's completely changed my game. Like I went from reading a book a year on vacation to listening to anywhere from 12 to 18 books a year. And honestly, I don't know if we'd be doing the show right now if it wasn't for some of the books that I, that I listened to, for example, The 4-Hour Workweek or The 80-20 Principle. All these had helped enhance my productivity. So I'm a big fan. I know my wife. I know my mother-in-law. We're all Audible members. So, you know, if you use the link attached to the show notes, you get a free month of the Audible service. And if you do sign up, it's, you go a book a month plus two Audible originals a month plus 30% off any uh, additional uh, books that you, you purchase. So I love these guys. I love this service and it's a game changer. Okay, guys, let me tell you about Dr. Ray Watt. He is a scientist, an award-winning, best-selling author. He's an associate professor at the University of Ottawa through the Faculty of Global Health Sciences. He's a former chief scientific advisor for the federal government and a blogger, 
podcaster, just an overall wonderful human being. So without further ado, Ray Watt. Ladies and gentlemen, we got Dr. Ray Wadiyanandan in the mix. How are you doing? I have acid reflux. <laughs> We've talked about that already. I, but I'm doing can, can I just say how much I love that answer? There, there's only two reasonable responses to how you do it. <laughs> Fine or something quick and yes. funny. Nothing else is acceptable. I love it. Speaking of funny, you and I have something in common that I don't think we've talked about. I both really handsome. Well, we're, we are pretty. It's too bad we're not looking at each other, but we are both pretty. But we are both haiku enthusiasts. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Like it was a very underappreciated but poetic form. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. All about that haiku. Listen. <laughs> what a way to start. <laughs> Starts with that. <laughs> in the midst of a global pandemic, we start with uh, acid reflux yeah, and haiku. Yeah, was- I, I, by the end, I will have a haiku about pandemics and uh, right. acid reflux. Listen, what would be your message as an ep- epidemiologist to our public? Like, what's right. some of the themes that I you're mean, you're concerned about or want to express? I, I have an ongoing mantra that I repeat at every media engagement, and I'll tell to anyone who asks about this crisis, and that is, it's not necessarily a health crisis. It's a health systems crisis. Mm. And the distinction is that a health crisis, managed mostly by clinicians like yourself, we wait for salivation from an external source, like a vaccine. That's how most people think about a medical crisis. What's the cure? What's the therapy? A health systems crisis, on the other hand, relies upon salvation from within, using technologies, resources that are currently with us. All a health system crisis needs to abate is leadership, preparation, resources, and appropriate investment. Hmm. We can do all that now. It just takes you know, organizational acumen and political will. Hmm. So what does that really look like in terms of where we're at with COVID now? So we're, this interview is on March 31st. You know, we're seeing different numbers throughout the country. Like, uh, you know, we're yeah. seeing a d- deceleration in British Columbia, you know, not 100% sure today what the numbers are looking like in Ontario. But what do you think we need now to be able to get a handle of this? Well, as an epidemiologist, my answer is always going to be information. Hmm. So data drives the best decision making. And I'll get back to answering your question in a more straightforward way in a second. But I've been following the, the big name epidemiologists in the world as they comment on this. Have been retreating to the very... Uh, comfortable but problematic contrarian position that without appropriate data, it is inappropriate to act the way we've been. For example, John Ioannidis famously wrote this article a few weeks ago saying that the data currently do not support these extreme economic measures of lockdown and, and so forth. And the pushback, I think, is that in absence of perfect data, we make decisions based upon what's available. And the temptation is to view all of this through a evidence-based medicine lens, which has a, a high threshold for action, rather than a public health lens, which has a low threshold for action. All of that is to say, ideally, we would need better data collection regimes in order to guide decision-making down the road from an evidence-based lens. Right now, we make do with what we have. Right? So what we do we have? We have some caseload information from the sporadic and inconstant and in, and non-ideal testing that we currently have on this country. 
given what we see from this inconstant, sporadic, and imperfect testing, we see uh, spiking in some jurisdictions, but the expectation is that the curve is going to bend in one, two, possibly three weeks. At that point, what we need is an outrageous military-style deployment of public health infrastructure that we've never seen before. And that public health infrastructure at its core is all about testing, mm. testing, testing, mm. testing. That's how we get out of this with, with the technology that exists today that is testing. He's got to buy a bunch of tests and de- deploy them strategically. So there's so many questions here. So you think with our current measures, with our social isolation, in your humble opinion, it should have imp- some impact on the curve? I think so. I think so. That except if people aren't taking the distancing and the isolation seriously. I mean, the, the two models are the suppression model and the mitigation model. Mitigation model is social distancing or physical distancing as we call it now. So, you know, reduce the rate of spread and therefore the rate of new case production. Mm-hmm. And you, you maintain the new case production at a level manageable by the healthcare system, but you still intend on infecting mm-hmm. everybody eventually, right? And that's going to have some kind of disarray in the economy lasting many months possibly. The other model, the suppression model, has a hard lockdown and we force the, new, the rate of new cases to dwindle down to a simmering boil in a matter of weeks. I think that's kind of where we're inching towards now. Uh, in absence of that, of that approach, we, we risk having economic impacts that might be almost as bad as the disease. Mm-hmm. You had uh, Paul Offit on last week and that was a great interview. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That. With, with uh, great intent. And he made an interesting point about just that, about we need to pay attention to the public health impact of our intervention itself. Right? And that's, that's coming for sure. So given those two options, suppression and mitigation, I think right now we have to think strongly about hard suppression in order to soften the economic blow. But, but the... Um, the reason that epidemiologists early on, at least uh, some, particularly the ones in England, were pushing for the mitigation path was that the suppression path means that you get the number of new cases down to a simmering boil, but they're coming back in a couple of months, right? So we have these rolling waves of suppression and relaxation, mm-hmm. whereas the mitigation uh, approach doesn't. This only works, the suppression only works as a long-term strategy, in my opinion, if we follow it up with this enormous flood of testing, contact tracing, and public health powers, wow. kind of like what they do in Singapore and, and South mm-hmm. Korea. Wow. Oh, a bunch of other questions like, you know, like uh, what are the cultural and political differences in these countries? and How do we make it happen? No, uh, but I mean, I th- sorry to interrupt, but I think part of coming up with the answers to know just the general principles because you know a lot of the times we have these conversations with the short term the short term consequences in mind not thinking of the long long term implications so what i what i like that you mentioned about the suppression is being like verbalizing that this doesn't fix the the, the problem that this could come back you know what i mean like i don't know if we the general public thinks of it this way. And so this is why I think it's important to mention like the value of why we need to have 
testing, testing, testing as, as, as a key measure to be able to manage these things. And so I didn't mean to ruin your flow. So you could ignore this. You could ignore this question too, but with the mitigation theory, like, do you think it's, do you think it, it, it is a reasonable approach if, you know, in terms, in terms of weighing out all the kind of benefits and, 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 and costs, knowing that potentially uh, is our testing going to be ramped up in this, in a, in a, in a short yeah, period of time? All this depends upon the, the ability to get the right test kits and to deploy them strategically. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the right path, the, the suppression and testing path, because our biosciences sector has, is up to the task. And we see the major countries, US, Canada, Britain, investing heavily in getting those tests on the ground as quickly as possible. One of the key tests that we need is the serology test, yes. the antibody test. And I, I read, you know, conflicting reports on how we are, or where we are in that development and deployment. So I know England has ordered antibody tests directly from a manufacturer, whereas the CDC website says they're still in development. So I'm not sure how, what's true in all this. But um, as you're aware, the, the serology test measures whether or not someone is or has been exposed to the disease, mm-hmm. meaning that it can tell us if people are already immune to it. Mm-hmm. And that will hasten our path to herd immunity. And we can you know, uh, return to some semblance of normalcy uh, quite, quite fast. An important consideration to, you know, to, to quell people's anxiety about this is to remember every time someone gets this and recovers, that person is now recruited back into the economy to keep things mm-hmm. running. So for every infection, probably means uh, it's someone who's going to be a contributor to the solution in mm-hmm. one month. Right? So think about it as a machine cranking out susceptibles in one pile into recovered in the second pile. And that recovered uh, pile represents people who will help us. Mm-hmm. So it's bad to be infected. It's bad to get sick. It's bad to die, obviously. But it's really good to recover. Absolutely. Uh, so the goal eventually is going to be global herd immunity, which comes in one of two forms, either this natural way through our, our, our management of the suppression or mitigation waves, or artificially through the arrival of the vaccine, which won't be two years. Mm-hmm. Probably. But that's where we're going to end up eventually with global herd immunity. Yeah. So I guess that is why I'm, I, I don't mean to belabor this, but that's why I'm, I'm wondering a lot about the mitigation you know, like yeah. in a controlled way, having some of our our population g- g- develop immunity. You know, like it's in some ways. I wonder if sure. yeah, it's not an insane idea. It's not insane. I mean, and this is originally, I think, argued for by the Imperial College of London by Neil Ferguson. Yeah. Um, I, I don't put words in his mouth, but I think that was his argument. And UK government, that is sort of their plan. Right, so they don't want to stamp it out entirely. They want to maintain some kind of community activity in order to, to have a bubbling amount of infections manageable by the NHS. I think that's their mm-hmm. approach. The problem, though, is it that approach assumes that everyone's going to get infected anyway, mm-hmm. just manage their timing and accept the deaths and the suffering that will come with it. Mm-hmm. An alternative view is that if you can delay the infection longer, that buys us time to develop better treatments and, and, you know, and prevention protocols. Mm-hmm. The treatments are coming down fast and furiously from our laboratories, and, and many are showing some promise. Yeah. 
So I think it would be tragic if we had this strategy to encourage some people to become infected now and some die of it. And six months from now, we have, we have Yeah, I think that's a very important point. Like, you know, like, honestly, if I mean, I don't have a finger on the pulse at all. But if there are solutions like, you know, because like, I, I don't think the vaccine one is legit, in my opinion, because it, it's so far down the road. But, you know, if we're, we have other measures that are coming down the pipeline that potentially are months away, that's a different story. You know, because as you said, yeah. we don't want to have unnecessary deaths if we can do our if we could have solutions months down the road. I mean, some of the promising ones include the plasma phoresis yeah. uh, treatments, right? And, and those are being implemented right now. They're showing great progress. Are they, are they being um, implemented? Yeah, I wasn't sure if that's, it was mostly just, you know, at... Uh, the- well, it's, it's not widespread implementation. It's on a, a trial basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think Toronto Hospital has ordered... Really? Phoresis from Yo. China, I think. We'll look at, we'll, we'll update the notes and stuff closer to release date. But that's, we also want to do a show about that as well, actually. But no, that's that's a great point, though. Right, and we don't even know what this disease will look like in a couple of months. It is uh, mutating, as all viruses mm-hmm. do. It's I think it's foolish to assume it will mutate quickly into irrelevance, but it's possible, mm-hmm. right? So again, it would be tragic if we encouraged a bunch of people to get infected in the short term and suffer and die when a few months from now they would. Yeah, and you do hear a lot of talk. It's so hard to get reliable info right now, and it's part of the goal of our of our show that people could get some reliable information about COVID. But it's it's, it's hard to, like you hear a lot of people talk about, you, you know, we're going to get a second wave in the fall, and maybe this is going to be suppressed in the summertime because maybe there's some climate implications. Like, yeah. But it, to be honest with you, as you said, we really don't know. Like these are just educated, really educated know. guesses, you know. This is going to change so many things, especially how diseases are portrayed on science fiction TV shows. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, those shows, hey, the, the epidemic breaks out twenty four hours later. There's a vaccine. Everyone's cured. No, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of time to collect information, process the information, and understand what it mm. means. What I find so interesting about all this, well, so many things are so interesting. Mm. One of them is we live in the information age. We, we couldn't do what we're doing now, even having this conversation five years mm-hmm. ago, you know, it was not as advanced. And yet there is a slowness in collecting, processing and sharing. Isn't it crazy? Isn't it crazy? It's 2020 and how it's slow, sh- like, excuse my French, how shit mo- like uh, gets in, how information gets processed and, and disseminated. Yeah, I don't understand it. It, it, does, it okay. does not I mean, make sense. Preaching the, the virtues of surveillance for a long time. Every epidemiologist understands that we need to know where the diseases are, who has them, and when they're going to come. It's a, a low-tech, easy way to prepare for these issues. And we have wonderful surveillance systems around the world, but it's amazing to me how slow it is to get the information about the, the number of tuberculosis cases in a given country, for example, and, and who they are, mm-hmm. uh, what their genders are, what their underlying conditions this And yet it's like pulling teeth. Even I'm trying to figure out in the USA, who are these people who are being hospitalized and and dying? Um, Like what are their underlying conditions? Impossible. Sporadic. Impossible. Yeah, it's impossible. And it shouldn't be. You know, because I asked that question, like, uh, because we're in, excuse me, we're, uh, we're starting to see cases in Ottawa now, right? So 
but some of the information that I would love to know is how comorbid are the patients that are end up, for example, in critical conditions? Like you, you'll hear these spot extreme examples of, oh, this healthy so-and-so year old got admitted or whatnot. But like, is that the norm? Is that a small percentage? You know, right. are they obese? Are they, do a lot of them have hypertension, diabetes, what, what have you? This information, at least from what I'm seeing, and I'm not looking at it with an ultra super lens there, but I'm not getting that. And how valuable would that yeah. be? So this tell, this is a health systems failure mm. because the information exists somewhere in the system. It's not being concatenated and processed in the appropriate way. It's not being given to the people who need to know mm. it. And imagine, uh, think about how that information could be well applied. It could be well applied for planning purposes, mm-hmm. for, for you know, staffing your hospital. And it can be well applied for how we plan our, our approach to the epidemic as well. A lot of people keep asking me, why don't we just you know, lock up the vulnerable, let it run rampant through the community, and, that, and the non-vulnerable will become immune in two weeks, and then the vulnerable are safe. And my answer is always, who's vulnerable? Mm-hmm. We don't even know. Mm-hmm. Right? We assume it's the elderly, but it's not. We assume it's the you know, immunosuppressed, but it's not just mm-hmm. them. We would know if we had this information, but we don't. Mm-hmm. So uh, that kind of information, if it was at our fingertips, could could be a game-changing uh, lever on the strategic choices we make at a public health level on how to put Oh, man. I mean, you and I don't know each other, but we, like, one of my big passions is in research is big data, like doing a lot of big data research and, and how, to be honest with you, even in Ontario through ICS, there's a ton of amazing, beautiful data that people just do not tap into. Yeah, it's interesting, right? It's interesting looking at who the leaders are in presenting the information. I was on a, uh, I'm, I'm going to plug myself for do a second, it. I was on a, a British TV yesterday, and uh, we're doing myths and facts of COVID. And where's I going with this? Oh, yeah, the, <laughs> one of the questions was, uh, is who is, uh, where should people go for information about this disease? And most of the panelists were saying, you know, government websites, but someone else said, yeah, but some governments are propagandizing the information. And someone else said, WHO, yeah, but WHO is kind of slow in publishing their data. And then I find that universities do the best mm-hmm. job. Not all of them, but some of them. So there's some key loci in the community that are processing data very quickly and sharing it in novel ways, like data visualizations and interactive maps. And that's very inspiring. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me that on the one hand, you have highly responsive and highly technological methods of engaging the public and researchers with prime data. On the other hand, you have a failure of our old institutions like public health, like government, to get that same data out in a way that is inspiring and useful. Mm. If you go to you know, a public health a PIAC website, and I'm not criticizing like they're God bless them, everything they're doing right now. But but the kinds of data that they're releasing the public, highly processed. And from a researcher's perspective, I, I can't really, I can't extract what I need. Hmm. You know, whereas the data that Johns Hopkins produces or you know, some of the data visualizations from some labs from U of T is useful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I question, are they getting it from the same source? All of this to say, all of this to say that, of course, data and therefore information 
is one of the key tools that we need to attack this thing. Yeah. That brings it right back into the health systems domain, a manageable item. I, I, I tell people all the time, this is not an apocalyptic event. It's not an extinction level event. It's not the zombie apocalypse. We're not going to be living in Mad Max world in a year. This is just a really bad health systems failure. But we can turn it around with the right focus in a matter of months. Wow. Yeah, I... Yeah, because I think one of my anxiety points was realistically, you know, when it comes to dealing with this is how long for, you know, and and obviously there's still a lot of unknowns uh, regarding like yeah. how long we got to keep this up. But I do like what you're saying that, you know, we can't, this is manageable. We just need to have the right approach. You also brought up the point too, of, you know, just going back to the big data thing, like I think often we don't, in research in general, this is a bit of soapbox um, point, but we don't ask the phenotype question enough. Like who exactly is most likely to, to you know, die from this or be infected from this? Like these are questions that would be so valuable in so many ways. Like as simple as you and I both have acid reflux, you take, uh, <laughs> you take, you know, we take the same proton pump inhibitor. One, you, yours is effective, mine isn't. What is it about you that makes it more likely to be effective? Same thing with right. same thing with COVID, and you end up on, on a ventilator in ICU. What is it about you, really, that's making you more susceptible? And there's tons of data out there. Yeah, absolutely. And we won't know the truth of this for, a long time, for another yeah. couple of years. But you know, um, I'm impressed by Iceland. Iceland has taken a fairly scientific approach to their management of their epidemic. And mind you, Iceland is a tiny country, about 350,000 people. In addition to deploying their regular testing like, like we're doing, they, they do random sampling as well. Hmm. And they've, they've given over the random sampling to a local, not a local, are they local? Uh, a company called Decode, so a private organization, offers free screening tests to, to Icelanders. And so they've got a, a grasp of the actual true prevalence of COVID-19 wow. in their population. I think their estimate is 0.89%, which is an inspiring number. If, if we can translate that to Canada, that brings our, you know, our burden down to several hundred thousand mm-hmm. um, that right? I can't do math right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that allows them to strategically target which portions of the country need the most public health. Investment. Wow. That which ones probably need to be more isolated or quarantined. That's the kind of, of, of power that data can bring to bear in managing this thing as we return to normalcy. So as I've been telling people, pandemics come in many waves or many, many phases rather. I like to think of it that there are two major phases. The first phase is in the sporadic, isolated case phase. And the second phase is the growth and community spread phase. We're in the second phase, the exponential growth Mm -hmm. phase. But in that first phase, public health can do a great job in preventing it from getting to the second phase. So a good sentinel surveillance system could detect a case when it manifests. Public health is thus empowered to quarantine that person and do intensive contact tracing. Mm -hmm. Those contacts can then be identified, tested, testing is key here, excluded or confirmed, and then isolated again. That prevents the rest of society from having to deal with it. Mm. The second you get to that second phase where we are now, 
then the role of, of testing as a mitigation strategy or tool is diminished. Mm-hmm. And now testing is all about something else. So uh, I'm, I'm talking about many things at once here, but, but people ask me about the role of testing all the time. I, I see it as testing as, as three, three roles, depending on the lens that you look at it through. The public health lens sees testing as a way to identify people that need to be restrained, isolated, and traced. Mm-hmm. The clinical lens sees testing as a way to figure out who's got the disease so we know how to treat them. And the third is the health systems lens, which is testing as a way for us to get information in order to plan for the future. Mm-hmm. So in the second half of the epidemic, this growth and um, exponential growth phase, the testing is more in the clinical realm. Is People come to the hospital, I, have, I probably got COVID, let's test you to make sure so we know how to mm-hmm. treat and the opportunity for screening the population is a bit diminished. As that curve bends and we return to some semblance of normalcy with a percolating, bubbling set of a few cases per day, then we can return to the realities of that first phase and use the, the Iceland approach with uh, constant random sampling with an intense sentinel surveillance system and, and improved powers of public health to restrain, to find punish to isolate to prevent this from happening again i mean we 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 were talking about email you asked me how some of the other countries are are doing and i did a a quick scan of what's going around around the world it's really interesting seeing how different countries have responded Mm -hmm. to this israel (laughs) israel uses their counter espionage system to track cases which is so interesting from a political and civil rights uh, lens right yeah, so uh, I'm not sure how long they can maintain that until there's a, a mass uprising. That's the sort of idea of an intense, empowered public health system. Wow. Can we bring to bear the full powers of our technological society to identify cases and compel them not to spread to others? Uh, that brings up the idea of uh, how different cultures react mm-hmm. as well. Probably the, the two countries doing best are South Korea and Singapore. Mm-hmm. And Singapore is... Um, an example we always turn to as uh, they've maintained their, their case fatality rates at 0.3%. Ours is around 1% now. So 0.3% is astonishing low. And, you know, they have a strict testing pro- program and a strict containment program as well. But they have very compliant citizens mm-hmm. who, who are more likely to respect authority and will stay home when the government tells them to stay home. Mm-hmm. We don't. Yeah. <laughs> So our cultural difference here, I celebrate our liberalism. I celebrate our, our sovereignty of the individual right to be what we want to be. That's proving to be a barrier in how we can best manage this. So the need to empower public health to quash individuality. <laughs> it pains me to say it that way. Temporarily. <laughs> Temporarily. Man, yeah. these this is, I'm, I'm loving this because I'm learning a lot here, actually. So... <laughs> Like I'm four years old, because you're kind of you've alluded to this in terms of the sound strict or I don't know what the word is, but keeping ethics aside, no, actually cons- with ethics and consideration and culture as a consideration, where do you think it has been the best? Like, do you think the Iceland model is the best one out there? You know, considering you know that we do have a very relatively liberal society and. You know, a lot of attitude of like, fuck the man, you know, but uh, <laughs> like, wh- where do you think is 
doing it the well, best, I mean, it's I an interesting question. And best is a difficult question because what's best for them might not be best exactly. for us. There yeah. are cultural constraints, there are demographic constraints, there are a lot of geographical constraints. Iceland and Singapore both benefit from being island mm-hmm. nations with small populations. South Korea is doing well as well. And they also have a, a fairly more compliant society than we are. South Korea's and Singapore's strength was, again, testing at a scale that we can't imagine. Mm-hmm. Right? They, I think they test like one out of every 200 people gets tested. And they have a 10-minute fast wow. test. Our test. Why, why, our test why do we not, this is the other thing. Like, why aren't we getting a hold of this <laughs> shit? You know what I mean? Like, if it's out there, it's 2020. Be like, yo, dog, can you pass that test yeah. over here? We're willing to pay. You know I mean? Well, you know, Abbott Labs has a new five-minute test, and they're be they're going to ship out fifty thousand a day starting this week, I think, to the U.S. Okay. Uh, yeah, and so there's a whole whole suite of new kinds of tests coming of it. Again, goes back to what I said about our biosciences sector really stepping up their game and showing what they can do. So this is not 1918. This isn't even 2009. This is 2020, a whole different technological regime that must come to the fore and show what they can mm-hmm. do. So in South Korea, they also use their telecommunications infrastructure. So when you, when you submit your test, there's a, you know, a 10 minute, it takes 10 minutes in the lab to process the test, and they can, they can get you the results that same day by text message. Wow. So you are texted in your phone, hey, you're tested positive, stay the fuck home. Yeah. Wow. And, and with a, a, a confidence that the person will stay home and there will be you know, public health follow-up. We can do that too. It takes, this is where the politicians can step in. It, it takes political will. It takes empowering public health with the right uh, legislative tools. And it takes some more legislative creativity to, to engage for example, the telecommunications network and infrastructure and businesses to be on board with these sorts of plans. But this is why we, this, I mean, you're going to hear me amped up for a bit. This is why we have to have <laughs> conversations like this, dog. Like, I literally, like, excuse my ignorance, but I had no idea that level of testing and, and infrastructure is being implemented throughout other places in the world. And that level of technology in terms of the advances of te- testing are happening that quickly because that's a whole different ball game that is a whole different ball game and if we can have these conversations encourage our lawmakers encourage our health authorities to to step up and like amp this up we could this will allow us to get to a normal normalcy normal yeah. NC, what's the yeah to yeah. get uh, no, I, 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 a, well pseudo normalcy like relatively speaking like <laughs> on that scale closer to uh you know reality sooner than sooner than later yeah so uh, imagine no sorry, no, no good there. you're more important uh, um, <laughs> imagine you know if if we have this full suite of tests at our disposal deployed at saturation levels across our society and now you have to go to the dentist now, when you go to the dentist, you're, you're spraying all kinds of stuff into the air, your aerosols and so forth. And so if you're test positive, you are likely to be contaminating the dental suite. So we want to know before we, we give you a dental treatment whether or not you test mm-hmm. positive. So if you, you go to the dental uh, office, we can give you a 5 or 10 minute or 15 minute test on the spot, on-site testing. You sit in the waiting room. 10 minutes later, you know if you're positive or negative. The dentist knows whether or not they need to get fully gowned to treat you and disinfect the room, right? It takes a little more time, but you can still get your... But you, 
Exactly. You could still get the like right now. There's people having that are not getting their elective, semi-elective cancer surgeries. They're not getting their like their hips done because and right like in like in March thirty first, twenty twenty. And if we had those rapid testing, like right now, everyone in the OR, you're assuming they could potentially have COVID because you can't get the testing that quickly. So like. Yeah. You're getting more PPE, more like uh, way less efficient, less cases being done, more people suffering, less people that are active in the economy. Like what you're throwing down is the ticket, Ray. It's the ticket. Take it, exactly. Imagine, you know, a nurse going to the hospital. She does a quick uh, finger prick plasma test for either either for antibodies or for RNA fragments. And can know in 15 minutes if she is safe to go into the hospital to give care. You know, and that would be a daily basis. If you test negative today, you may not. Snap, right? Tomorrow. Like, you know how many of us are, like, initially, too, had to be self-quarantined and, like, part of the workforce that had to be put at home and not being able to help out because of potential exposure. And now, like, you, you want to be able to, like, in case we do get a... Uh, We'll talk about projections in a bit, but in case we do get hit hard, have, not having that manpower, we've seen that in, Se- in uh, Seattle, we hear that in, in New York, working crazy yeah. hours, you hear it in Italy, and yeah, like to be able to have that testing, to be able to come back and contribute and help out, everything. Yeah. So th- that's, a, again, the health systems uh, angle of it, at, a, at an epidemiological population angle, what's coming soon is the home-based test. I think that's being rolled out in the U.S., that is that is right. money right there. Like so, that's legit happening. It's legit happening, right? So I think three companies have been cleared by the FDA to to start shipping their stuff. So you order the test at home, you do your swab, you send it by mail to the lab. A few days later, you get your results back. Are you negative? Are you positive? Now imagine that as a serology test. Well, that changes everything. Boom. Suddenly, you know, are you immune? Yes or no? And then maybe we can issue some sort of identification card. I'm immune. I can go to this concert. I can go to this. Yeah, you can go to run the jewel. You know what I'm saying? Right. There's going to be some fraud issues, you know, clearly, but it's a path forward. It's better than where we're at now. That's right. So, and and I bring all this up. This isn't science fiction technology. This is technology coming down the pipeline now, and some of it exists now. And it means that we can return to a sense of pseudo-normalcy in foreseeable future. Not like two years from now, but months from now so I, i'm a, i'm an optimist now i'm an optimist by nature and i wasn't for a couple of days <laughs> uh, a couple of weeks ago i wasn't i was actually pretty gloomy and my girlfriend's very concerned because she'd never seen me depressed yeah. before but then i took a hard look at the numbers and realized you know what we can get through this, this uh, and all it, sorry, you know, all it takes is a bit yeah. of will. all it takes is some will and yeah and honestly you know conversations like this getting the public more informed of what the power of public health is People that are more influential than any of us might be able to promote and and advocate for some of these tools and tests to get to the forefront, you know? There there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic. I mean, there is, again, the flotilla of tests coming our way. There are. Did you just bust out flotilla? Is that what you just bust? I busted out flotilla, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There is the pantheon. The pantheon of new treatments that I, I is like readily becoming available. I'm all about flow. Yo. I, I'm about that out. Yo, you, you check out that flotilla coming through. Yeah, I, I dig. I dig. 
<laughs> right? And <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> optimism angle. Oh, and then there's, you know, I, I don't think that weather is going to change this dr- dramatically, but there's some data suggesting that the increased temperature and increased humidity will decrease transmissibility mm-hmm. by a measurable amount. As, as the summer months approach and people spend more time outdoors, transmissibility will also diminish. So there's positive positivity there. And then there's the idea of the, the virus mutating slightly. Mm. Over, over many generations, most pathogens mutate towards less lethality mm. because the environment selects for those ones that do not kill their mm. host. And um, so eventually that, that's what's going to happen here. So again, this is not an apocalyptic event. This will be fine. Mm-hmm. No, that is, uh, man, I'm feeling, I'm, feeling, I'm getting up and getting ready to do some jumping jacks after that. <laughs> or roundhouse kicks, as we yeah. talked about before. <laughs> right. I mean, but having said that, you know, there's still, there's still people suffering and there's still people losing their jobs. And uh, I think about them every day. Mm-hmm. So this is why we need to find a path forward that gets us back to pseudo normalcy as quickly yes, as possible. Yes, this is why we got to hustle. Like, I mean, you, you uh, thanks for listening to that Paul Offit one. It was, it was just kind of, for me, it was about, you know, maybe thinking about some solutions because of how long we might need to be socially isolated or even getting our, our society collectively to hustle to solutions. Like, what, what are we going to do to really yeah. deal with this? Because I know in my inner core, I do think people will suffer and die if you have prolonged social isolation. I, I truly believe that. And so, yeah. and so I, I think this is why it's important to have these conversations and it's important to act and get the ball rolling. Cause I'm, I mean, I'm, we're both in Ottawa. It's red tape capital of the world. And I, one of my, my other concerns too is that, you know, we don't get caught up in, red tape when it comes to innovation like like what we're talking about like of course we want to make sure the test is reliable we want to make sure the test is safe but don't get too caught up in in having you know nine administrators having to check off on something here's a a a scary but probably true statement that i may regret in a few months and that is in the long run it's probably cheaper to pay off all the liability lawsuits coming from failed tests than it is to sustain this assault on our economy. Yeah. No, it's, I, you know, yeah, it is controversial to say that, but it, there is some truth to that for sure. Like it's, I, I think, I think when it comes to, when you, when you're in a situation where you're desperate and, and you, you know, you, you, things can't be as vetted as you, you like and time is of the essence. I think it just comes down to what are you, what are you make a shared decision-making process like what risk are you willing to take for us to keep going you know on that nature on that note there's i don't know if you're aware but there is a proposal for a challenge trial for one of the new vaccines you know, a, a challenge trial is it, it skips through the phase three safety trial and efficacy mm-hmm. trial and this is put forth by mark lipsich of harvard and it says uh, if healthy volunteers are willing to accept the risk of possible death and other bad effects by an untested vaccine they should be allowed to do so in this case if it hastens the arrival of an effective vaccine to save all of humanity. Wow. That's their look argument. At that. Look at yeah. Talk about throwing down some like ethics. Yeah, and- I, I admire them for putting this in writing and for putting it out there and see what the world thinks. Wow. I, I wonder what the opinion is because my personal opinion is that because the virus is not ultra lethal, 
there were like for me personally, there's zero chance I would put myself at risk for that. Like I know that there's a lot of people that are at risk, but you know, as a relatively healthy person, I don't know why I said relative. I'm healthy. Yeah, for me personally, there would be zero chance of like putting myself sure. at risk. But maybe, maybe there's, you know, there are better people out there. There are better people out there. Also, there may be you know um, incentives. Yeah, of course. Financial or that, otherwise. That does bring up some ethics. Absolutely, it does. Right. So who will who will take that bait? It might be the people who are struggling to pay their bills. Yeah. Then you're taking advantage of people's you know of, of financial vulnerability. So uh, this whole crisis is going to be uh, fed upon by academics from all stripes for decades. Mm-hmm. No <laughs> kidding. Wow, that uh, man. I- Ray, throwing knowledge throughout this show, dog. This is uh, <laughs> phenomenal. Let me let me pick your ear on the, the projections. So, like, you know, in terms of the way things are going now, and I'll let you answer this any way you want to. Say if we, in our current state with our current uh, social isolation processes, you know, what you, what you think the future looks like. Is, or if... We weren't as aggressive, say, as our counterparts in the States or the extreme example of in Italy. What Canadians would expect? However you want to answer that, I'm happy with. Okay, let's, let's start with what, what would happen if we had done nothing. Mm-hmm. Right? So some quick uh, calculations. We have a population of about 37 million. If we let the disease run rampant, it'll probably stop when we achieved herd immunity, which is like 60% of the population being Mm -hmm. infected. So 60% of 37 million is uh, 22 million. I think our hospitalization rate for this disease most recently is 6%. So that would mean over a million hospitalizations Mm -hmm. in a country with 57,000 beds. So that's that's not a good thing. Mm -hmm. And if we we use our current CFR, which is... CFR is the case fatality rate, for people who don't know, of about 1.1%. That would mean over 200,000 deaths. But given that the hospitals would be overrun, the CFR would be higher. And if you were to use the global CFR average for COVID, which is about uh, 2.3%, we're looking at half a million deaths, if not more. So if we were to let it run rampant, I think within one disease cycle, like two months, you're looking at half a million dead Canadians, Uh, right? Which is... Not good. And if I'm wrong by a factor of 10, it's still crazy. then you're looking at 50,000 yeah. deaths, right? which is not great. If, if I'm wrong by a factor of 100, you're looking at 5,000 deaths, which is not great. Mm. So um, either way you look at it, doing nothing is not an option. So that leads us to now that that first phase of the pandemic is done and the options for testing and isolation are off the table, um, all we're left with is distancing and or lockdown. So... That takes us to the modeling, and uh, I'm not a disease modeler, but I've dabbled a bit, and uh, we talked offline that my one paper on disease modeling was modeling a theoretical extraterrestrial disease, dun, dun, dun. Which, uh, which, which will be a future podcast, I hope. That'll be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, the way that we think about disease modeling is we, we envision three compartments, susceptible people, which is everyone who can get the disease, the infected people, those who got the disease, and the recovered people, those who got it and then got better. And from the infected, you also get people who die, right? So, uh, and uh, who are hospitalized and then mm-hmm. die. So if you picture three pools of people flowing into each other, that's kind of how the, the formulation of the math was first achieved by looking at engineering. 
flowing of water from compartments to other compartments. Mm. So we call this the SIR model, susceptibility, infectivity, and, and recovery. And to do that appropriately, there are at least two differential equations that we model. One equation for the flow of the susceptible people to become infectious, and one equation of the flow of infectious people to be recovered or sometimes to die. Mm -hmm. But some of the new modeling techniques, uh, one is pioneered by David Fisman, who's uh, in the news a lot these days because he, he de developed something he calls the IDEA model, I-D-E-A, which stands for Incidence, Decay, Exponential, and Adjustment. And the brilliance of his model is that it accounts for an intervention. Mm -hmm. So let's go back for a second. When I talked about the SIR model with those compartments flowing and differential equations, the idea was this is how diseases flow. People get sick, people recover. Done. We just model it. But we don't consider the fact that sometimes things change. Sometimes the disease changes or hospitalization interventions changes or public health interventions cause a change. So Fisman's idea model allows us to understand that if we were to intervene at a certain point with social distancing or isolation, then the rate of change of flow of these factors might, might be altered. So a lot of us have been messing around with his idea model, and he's one of the leaders in, in publishing the BC projections, showing that, you know, that British Columbia might have leveled off and might be d diminishing as a result of his model. So based upon his equation, I think we are looking for a flattening of the curve within the next two weeks. Mm. Right? And this is due 100% to our efforts in this society to isolate and to distance. That's why I'm so furious every time I hear stories of a house party somewhere in Gatineau where mm. some kids got drinking in the park together. It's like, dude, every time this happens, you lengthen everyone's stay in lockdown by another couple mm. of days, if not longer, every single time. So... I've been a friend had asked me some weeks ago for, for some positivity out of all this, and I, I wrote him some some schlock, not schlock, actually good words about how this is an opportunity for humanity to be heroic at a level and in a way that no previous generation has had before. Other generations, when called to serve or to be heroic, was in wartime very often, where you're called to kill people, which is innately Go male. on a boat, you know what I'm saying, to take, go, get yeah. away from your family, no, not knowing if you're going to see them again, 100%. 100%, right. Whereas this time, you're being asked to do something innately good. There is no downside to this, no badness to this. We're fighting an inhuman foe, a viral foe. Stay home, Yeah. right? So it's an opportunity for everyone to come together as one enormous army to fight one insidious uh, creature that deserves to be killed. Wow. <laughs> a virus. Right? No, there's going to be no Peter Wrights asking <laughs> to preserve the rights of the coronavirus. And, you know and, sorry to interrupt, right? but just to reinforce your point about the, you know, if we're, you know, two weeks away from flattening the curve, like in acute care, like well, I can speak for in, in Ottawa right now, we are managing you know what I mean? Like the hospitals aren't yeah. being overrun. We are, we, our numbers are quite reasonable. And so like, if we are legit in a couple of weeks, able to have that curve flatten, we, we could cope. You what? know what I mean? Yeah. We yeah. Won. And so like, just to inspire some other cats, like 
yes, we're not going to war. You're just having to stay home, dog. But two, like what at a hospital level in March 31st, 2020, this is working. Okay. So like, let's yeah. keep it up, yo. Let's keep it. Now, of course, the, 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 the other shoe is that we can't keep this up forever. Yeah. The, the economy will collapse. People's mental health will suffer. Uh, all this stuff. So we need a staged re-entry into society soon mm-hmm. with probably by the end of next month that should begin. And that staged re-entry begins with the least vulnerable of us to the extent that we're able to identify those people and probably begins with you know, healthcare workers, other emergency uh, workers. And then as the summer unfolds, more people return, uh, return to work. And again, when the serology test gets here, that will be the game changer. Mm-hmm. Not the vaccine, the serology mm-hmm. test. Right? That's what people should look forward to. Is it is it a fair question for you to ask, like if you were to like you kind of answered this, but you know, if you were to lead the staged reentry into uh, normal life, like what your approach would be? I don't know, man. It's a good question. And I think you begin obviously with people who have recovered from the disease. Actually, that's a good they can point. Go about Actually, that's disease, a really good point. You know? And uh, with the assumption that they're, they're immune, maybe they're not. You know, if they're not, then we're really screwed. <laughs> so let's assume they are. <laughs> there, let me just say, for the record, there is no evidence that they are not immune. Yeah. There's a couple of, of scary stories coming out of Asia of reinfection, mm-hmm. but those are 100% due to um, false negatives. Okay. That's good to that's yeah, good to so, clarify. And so, at the very least, you're immune for a number of months, at the very least, and that gives us more time to develop more more interventions. So you begin with the recovered people, then you move into the. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking on top of my head here, but the people who the recovered people are most in contact mm-hmm. with, and who are also not mm-hmm. vulnerable. So they're they have some sort of localized herd immunity. Mm-hmm. Right. So then what, what non-vulnerable means, though, is going to depend on the science. Mm-hmm. There is a misconception that only the elderly are vulnerable. And that comes out of China. We saw mostly older people, particularly older men who smoked, dying of this. When we got to Europe, that changed a lot. So Europe, you know, Italy in particular has a, a higher age skew, which is understandable. But we have, we have a lot of middle-aged people suffering with the disease. And I think that has a lot to do with behavior with fitness with smoking mm-hmm. and then we got to the usa well it's pandemonium it's unclear who's getting it there but i suspect it's a lot of obesity and diabetes um, and other respiratory issues that are under acknowledged maybe even some nutritional mm-hmm. issues so i think people are largely unwell in american cities and that unwellness is manifesting as a vulnerability to this infection mm-hmm. So when it comes to how Canadians deploy or stage our reentry, we need to take a look at our demographics and the extent to which our population is susceptible to things like obesity, diabetes, and other underlying respiratory issues. Mm-hmm. The science will guide us, and it's not data that I am privy to. At yeah, the and I, I don't know if this is true too, but I mean, I feel like when it comes to you know, like steps similar to this. Almost nothing is nuanced. So, you know, I, I do think when often government or public health that I should say government would would reintroduce some level of normal, like uh, going back to regular life, they'll try and it will be a group. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I see it being like, I don't know, 
kids could go to school or maybe, as you said, the inf- people that have known to be infected. It's just the problem is like, how are they, how are you going to identify them and all that stuff? I'm I'm, right. I'm, not, I'm just thinking out loud here. Sure. No, I mean, th- th- that's a, that's a procedural issue. That's not a scientific right. issue. That's a, a, a administrative issue that can be solved by our overabundance of administrators. <laughs> right. Well, one thing we do not struggle with is a lack of administrators. <laughs> yeah, I mean, schools have to reopen. Daycares have to reopen. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I mean, I'm a university lecturer. Uh, universities are going to reopen in some capacity come September. Something we are not closing. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe online classes or, or some limited in pre- some limited in person engagement. But that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. We have uh, research agendas that require people to be in the labs producing knowledge. That's not going to slow down or stop. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that's the way it's going right. to work. And, and, and by the way. We talk about the the soldiers and the heroes of this crisis. We always talk about the healthcare providers. Number one, absolutely, that, that's the way it should be. But I, I want to point out that there's an army of unseen people keeping our society afloat, especially at nighttime. Anybody in, in a high visibility jacket is a hero in my book. Hundred percent. You know, we've we at Solving Healthcare have been trying to, you know, improve morale and support some of those frontline workers and. You know, we do, we start a project where we feed our, our frontline workers and and support families also that are might not have as much resources as others, but yeah, they're had luckily the, the cleaners, the, yeah. the chefs, the drivers, like, all these people. Exactly. Cashiers. Luckily, there's been a lot of initiatives, not by us, but by some other people throughout the city to support exactly what you're describing, like the person working even at Starbucks right now or, you know, delivering your food, like, uh, you know, they're putting themselves at risk and absolutely. um, And their families. Exactly. So I'm really glad you said that. And uh, to be honest with you, we're not also, we're also not mentioning some of these behind the scene epidemic, like people like yourself that are giving us, you know, more knowledge and, sure. and the science. But to be blunt, though, I'm not at risk. I'm at home comfortably behind my computer. For sure. But what you're doing. And being well paid for, sure. for it. So don't feel but sorry for what me. What you're doing is helping regardless. <laughs> and I think it, it, it needs to be said. Ray, I got to thank you so much for doing the show. I learned so much on this episode. And I got to tell you, it was empowering. And like, not just empowering, it's, it's like hopeful. And there is reason to to be hopeful and optimistic. And I, you really hammered home some points that I think we're maybe we're not talking about enough. And I can't thank you enough for this. And I'm going to tell you, we're going to be doing this again, son. This was knowledge Great. being thrown down like like mad crazy. So yeah, I really. Thank I, I you. feel twenty percent cooler <laughs> just being in, in your presence. Like your coolness has rubbed off on. Oh, it's so. contagious. Um, no, it's contagious. It's COVID nineteen. Stay home. But uh, I really appreciate you you doing this. And uh, honestly, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Thanks everybody for listening to our conversation with Ray today. This was awesome. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you guys want to leave any comments, leave them at quadcast nine nine at gmail dot com. Follow us on Twitter at and Instagram and. YouTube at Quadcast. See the links on the show notes if you want to contribute to our frontline workers, GoFundMe fund, or our Bridges Over Barriers charity to help support families during this tough time. Also want to thank our sponsors, BetterHelp and Audible. See the links below as well. Thanks everybody for listening. We're going to talk to you soon and everyone stay safe and stay 
home. Thank you.